1: As we dig deeper into our pockets to pay for gasoline, a new poll finds Americans are more willing to dig closer to home to find new sources of energy.
2: Many more people now prioritize greater energy exploration, mining, drilling, construction of new power plants over conservation and regulation. And that's a pretty significant shift.
1: Coming up, how shifting public opinion is driving Congress and energy legislation this summer. Also 60 years and three
3: generations later, a landmark study reveals ways you can reduce your risk of heart disease. I like to tell people, uh, even if you chose your parents unwisely, there's still a lot you can do to modify your destiny. In other words, it's in our hands. And home is where
1: the heart is. Our commentator shows the way. These stories this week on Living on Earth.
4: Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm.
1: From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman, in for Steve Kerwood. The price of petroleum products is swaying public opinion polls, And that has politicians paying close attention as the campaign season hits high gear. And Living on Earth's Jeff Young reports the parties have very different positions on how to win votes and influence energy prices.
5: Just north of the Capitol, there's a little patch of lawn used for outdoors press conferences. Capitol Hill regulars call it the swamp. On a bright day in late June, the swamp looked like a car lot of the future.
6: Look
7: at that.
2: So this is a, a, a power electronics unit, used to be a motor. No grease, <laughs> no oil. What, a, what, is this what Half a
5: do? dozen electric drive vehicles were on display. Nevada Senator Harry Reid, the Democratic leader, had a look at one that can do 100 miles an hour.
8: Fasten your seat belt on that one.
5: Uh, <laughs> Reid says Democratic proposals would support electric cars and other clean energy alternatives with tax incentives, but Republicans are blocking them. That's why we wanted to
9: do something about global warming. That's why we wanted to do something about gas prices. That's why we want to do something with alternative energy. And sadly, we've been stopped every step of the way by the Republicans telling us that what they want to do is do more fossil fuel, put more carbon into the air. We cannot. Democrats
5: favor taxing windfall profits of oil companies, unless those companies invest more in energy production and alternative energy research. And Democrats used high-profile hearings to focus on speculation in oil markets. North Dakota Senator Byron Dorgan says market watchdogs have been taking a nap.
10: This is an orgy of speculation on the commodity futures markets. And we're trying with a piece in this legislation on the floor of the Senate to wring the speculation out of these futures markets and bring back down the price of oil and gas where it ought to be relative to supply and demand. One week
5: later, the swamp was the scene of another energy press event. This time, dozens of Republican senators crowded around the podium to unveil their energy proposal. Tennessee's Lamar Alexander says Republicans also like electric cars and dislike oil market speculators. But their main point is a need for more U.S. oil. Our bill can be summed up in four words. Find more, use less. Republicans want to drill offshore and develop oil shale, rock deposits in southwestern states that, with some costly processing, can yield a form of oil. Alexander says over time the U.S. could boost its oil production by a third, but a moratorium prevents drilling along 85 percent of the U.S. coastline, and rules prohibit oil shale exploration.
10: When we say deep shore exploration, they say, no, we can't. When we say oil shale development, they say, no, we can't.
5: And as for the greenhouse gases that would come from burning that additional oil, well, that's not a high priority for New Mexico's Pete Domenici, the top Republican on the Senate Energy Committee.
6: The United States of America faces economic destruction because of our dependence on foreign oil long before we will ever feel the effects of greenhouse gases. There's no way to avoid it. We must use crude oil and that crude oil use must be more ours than foreigners, or we will die an economic death.
5: Democrats counter that oil companies are not drilling on some 58 million acres of land and water where they already have access. They propose a use-it-or-lose-it rule that would revoke idle leases. Republicans say Democrats don't understand how the market works. And Senator Alexander took a shot at Democratic presidential candidate Barack Obama.
10: But unfortunately, most Democrats still insist on trying to repeal the law of supply and demand. It's a new economic theory. We might call it Obamanomics.
5: Democratic leader Reid accused Republican candidate John McCain of flip-flopping on offshore drilling.
10: You know, in one of his other political lives, he said he was opposed to more offshore
5: drilling. And so it went, with partisan sniping reaching a crescendo just before Congress's July 4th break. Back home, lawmakers will surely get an earful about energy prices. New polling data show there's been a big change in what many voters want. For seven years, the Pew Research Center for the People and the Press has asked about priorities in energy policy. Do people want more exploration and development or more conservation and regulation? Pew Center Associate Director Carol Doherty says the majority had favored conservation. New numbers released July 1st, after gas prices jumped to $4 a gallon, show that's no longer true.
2: Many more people now prioritize greater energy exploration, mining, drilling, construction of new power plants over conservation and regulation. It's it's a 12-point gain just since February, and that's a pretty significant shift.
5: Doherty's numbers show much of that change came from unexpected places, groups usually inclined to favor conservation.
2: What you're seeing is, is, is kind of a shake-up, I think, of some long-held public opinion on this. Liberals, women, young people, these are groups that, uh, by and large, uh, prioritized conservation over, over expanded exploration in the past, and now they're moving towards uh, you know, big shifts there uh, in favor of uh, increased energy exploration.
5: That would seem to favor the Republican approach. But Doherty says the increased support for more drilling has not come at the expense of strong support for other measures like higher mileage cars, alternative fuels, and mass transit.
2: So the public is basically saying, uh, you know, all of the above at this point to a lot of different approaches to the energy problem.
5: That hints at growing public support for a mix of the Republican emphasis on energy supply and the Democrats' desire to reduce demand. But with election season upon us, the high ground of a bipartisan agreement is hard to reach in Washington. It's much easier to schedule more press conferences and blame the other guys down in the swamp. For living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Washington.
1: You've heard of a who done it? This is a what done it? Last year, a team of scientists on the remote Cape Verdean island of Sal Vicente noticed something very strange. Large amounts of ozone—almost half as much ozone as climate models predicted should be above the tropical Atlantic Ocean—were missing. To solve the mystery of the missing greenhouse gas, scientists built new instruments, loaded them onto airplanes, and took to the skies. And what they detected just might help save the planet from global warming. Professor Alistair Lewis is the science sleuth who led the investigation. He's Director of Atmospheric Composition at the National Centre for Atmospheric Science in York, England. Welcome to Living on Earth, Professor
7: Lewis. My pleasure. Great to talk about these things on a science show. So where did the ozone go? Okay, so ozone is destroyed when it's uh, hit by sunlight. And the things that you need to destroy ozone efficiently is lots of sunlight. And so it's no big surprise that the tropics are going to be the place where we're going to get the highest loss. What's surprising here is that we found more loss than you would explain just by sunlight hitting the molecule on its own. And in fact, what we found were some extra chemicals that speed up this process and add on top of it. And this was the big surprise. And in fact, these processes uh, involve some rather unusual chemicals involving bromine and iodine. Where did they come from? They sort of come from the same place, but not the same source, if you take what I mean. So we have bromine, which we believe comes from uh, small microscopic particles in the air that are generated over the the oceans by waves breaking. Uh, the iodine compounds, well, it's a bit more uncertain. We think they probably come from small microscopic um, biological uh, entities in the ocean. But again, we're a bit less certain. But they come from the ocean anyway. So
1: these two chemicals, they interact with the ozone and somehow they turn it into something which is not a greenhouse gas?
7: That's right. They destroy the ozone and turn it into something uh, that isn't a greenhouse gas. And part of this process, it's a very complicated set of reactions. It's not a single uh, easily described step. But one of the outcomes is actually you also begin to destroy a little bit extra of the greenhouse gas methane as well. So these two chemicals in this particular
1: part of the Atlantic Ocean are released. Why this particular part?
7: Well, this is why we think the discovery is quite important. We don't think there's actually anything specific and unique to this bit of the ocean. Um, Our hypothesis is actually this is very typical open ocean for the tropics. Uh, There's nothing unusual here. So if we see these chemicals released and the ozone disappearing in these places because of this, it could well be happening all over the tropical Atlantic, all over the tropical Pacific as well. So we think our findings may scale up to cover large chunks of the planet.
1: Well, this is really
7: good news. The sort of the glass half full view of course is that this is good, this means that if we get to grips with reducing our methane emissions the atmosphere will clean itself up quicker than we thought. This is good. If you take the glass half empty view it's well, we did a pretty good job of predicting methane so perhaps it means there are additional sources that we haven't taken account of. But we view this generally as a positive thing, if you get to grips with reducing your emissions the atmosphere will do its bit slightly quicker, clean us up and give us a sort of a quicker win uh, in terms of reducing greenhouse gases. So I guess- Yes, this is really going to change our, our perspective on climate models and change the climate models. Well, it, it certainly shows that we need to keep an open mind, that actually there are still some things out there uh, in remote places that are pretty important that we actually haven't discovered or accounted for yet. That it's not a completely done deal in terms of the chemistry of the atmosphere, that there are still some discoveries to come understanding how the climate works is still subject to big uncertainties. So there are big processes that perhaps we haven't discovered or processes that we don't understand accurately. And we need to go to these places to really tile them and really nail them down and actually determine how fast they're happening. Boy, science is deliciously complex and, uh, and surprising. It is, and uh, I I think that it's just surprising how you can remain to be surprised, uh, even in places where we think we really understood what was going on. And that's certainly true of the open ocean. It was a place that people studied extensively, sort of at at the dawn of studying the composition and chemistry of the atmosphere, and it was considered pretty simple to understand. Not many emissions there, not much chemistry going on. And yet, as we revisit these things 10, 20, 30 years on, we still discover new processes, and and in fact, pretty important ones as well. Why did you decide to set up your equipment
1: and your, your laboratory in, in Sa- Sal Vicente of all places? I mean, that's way
7: out there. Well, this is I, I'd love to say it was all science, but it isn't actually all driven by science, this. Partly, we had to wait until we could make the instruments that, uh, that would do the job for us, that would actually measure year-round. And part of it was finding somewhere that you could actually get to and do these experiments relatively easily. And one thing that's happened in Cape Verde recently, you know, certainly over the last five years, it's become a very popular holiday destination. So what this opened up to us was the potential to fly there, set up instruments, move freight around in a way that perhaps we wouldn't have been able to do 10 or 15 years before. So it's the sort of combination of partly science and actually partly serendipity that means that we've chosen this as our location. Boy, not bad work if you can get it. Well, it's nice to go to a place with a decent beach. Professor Alice De Lewis is Director of Atmospheric Composition
1: at the National Centre for Atmospheric Science in York, UK. Coming up, scanning hearts for disease and the seas for sharks. These stories just ahead on Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. In 1945, more Americans died of heart disease than all the U.S. soldiers killed in action during World War II. Cardiovascular disease has been an epidemic since 1921, when it became the
3: leading cause of death in the United States. Cardiologist Dr. Daniel Levy. Remarkably, very little was known about its underlying causes. Um, uh, Even less was known about its treatment. And absolutely nothing was known about approaches to its prevention. Really, the wake-up call was when Roosevelt died in 1945 from untreated, uncontrolled hypertension.
11: We interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin from CBS World News. A press association has just announced that President Roosevelt is dead. The president died of a c- cerebral hemorrhage. All we know so far is that the president died at Warm Springs in Georgia.
3: Shortly before he died, when he was in Yalta in February of 1945, carving up the, the map of the free world, uh, his blood pressure was running about 250 over 150. Numbers that many physicians in training today never see. That's because today physicians
1: know a lot more about the causes and prevention of cardiovascular disease, thanks in large measure to the small town of Framingham, Massachusetts, 20 miles west of Boston. Residents of Framingham had participated in a study of tuberculosis during World War I. So in 1948, when federally funded Harvard University researchers went looking for a convenient place to study heart disease, they chose Framingham. 5,209 adults volunteered to undergo medical exams every other year. Now the Framingham Heart Study is commemorating its 60th anniversary. It's one of the largest, longest-running, and most important observational medical studies in the world. Dr. Daniel Levy is director of the study and author of the book A Change of Heart, how the people of Framingham, Massachusetts helped unravel the mysteries of heart disease.
3: One of the reasons Framingham was good for this study was because it was so ordinary. There was nothing exceptional about it. It was average people, um, a a little cross-section of America, albeit of white America. But Framingham was not an unusual town. We very much lucked out. Society has lucked out that there's a community like this willing to be questioned, poked and prodded, have blood taken from you, and get nothing financial in return whatsoever. Framingham
1: dentist David Anganetti is one of those whose study researchers have poked and prodded. We put on those silly gowns, and they do soup to nuts. The Framingham Heart Study was supposed to last 20 years, but in 1968, researchers decided to continue and expand the study to include the children of the original volunteers. And years later, their children were also included. In all, nearly 16,000 residents of Framingham, three generations. Dentist David Anganetti. Both of my
5: parents were original participants.
1: My mother had just
5: some, uh, some mild hypertension, but she lived to 98 and a half. My father will be 102, and he doesn't have any heart disease. Uh, when they got the additional funding to carry on the study, they then wanted to get the children involved. And as soon as I got notified, I uh, became a participant. My son has gone. My daughter has been called but hasn't gone yet. And I'm hoping that my daughter will will take advantage of it. And you talk to any participant, they'll all tell you the same story. There's a relationship that and a bond and a trust and an admiration that the participants have for the researchers and the researchers have for the
1: participants.
10: They like to have you get your heart rate up to, maybe in my case, maybe a hundred.
1: Walter Sullivan is also a participant. He hops on the stationary bike he keeps parked in the bathroom of his home at a senior community in Framingham.
10: It's good for the heartbeat to be increased for some reason.
1: At 94, Walter Sullivan is one of the younger surviving members of the original study. About 400 are still alive. Sullivan practiced law until a few years ago. In 1993, he had a heart attack and later a bout of cancer. But these days, he's feeling fine, except for a new hearing aid, which he doesn't like much, especially when he's chewing lettuce. So if I have a salad, it goes crunch, crunch, crunch. (laughs) So I take the damn things out. Walter Sullivan's wife, Katie, was also an original heart study participant. She was 87 when she died in 1999, a victim of the silent killer that strikes half a million Americans a year.
10: She had... uh... A stroke. So she never recovered consciousness and she died the next morning, though so she had no history of that. The Framingham researchers only
1: collect data. If they find something medically wrong with a volunteer, they don't treat them but send the test results to their personal physicians. When the study began in 1948, few people had health insurance, so volunteering was one way to get regular medical
10: exams. This will be my 30th next year every 2 years for 6 for 60 years i look forward to it your participation
1: in this study it seems to me may have contributed to extending the lives of countless numbers of people
10: well i'm so i'm so happy with the reaction of the people of framingham they were doing something with their fellow citizens that was helpful to society so it's, it's a good feeling, uh, f- especially for a kid who grew up in Framingham. Walter Sullivan's three children and now
1: seven of his grandchildren also participate in the heart study. Again, director Daniel Levy.
3: When we recruited our third generation of participants, literally there was hardly a day that went by when one of these third generation's uh, individuals did not come in. Uh, and and say, I have waited all my life for this day to come. And and every time I heard someone say that, it gave me goosebumps.
1: Dr. Levy calls the study's database a national resource. Among the most significant findings, that smoking, menopause, high cholesterol, and high blood pressure increase your risk of heart disease. Now, this may seem obvious today, but identifying the risks has helped cut the rate of cardiovascular diseases by 60 to 70 percent. Yet despite this, heart disease is still the number one cause of death in America. The Framingham Heart Study has produced over 1,500 articles in leading medical journals, and its mission has again been expanded. Researchers are now mining the data to discover the genetic basis of not just heart disease and stroke, but cancer, arthritis, diabetes, and dementia. It could lead to new ways to diagnose and treat these illnesses. But Dr. Levy is cautious about overemphasizing the genetic
3: links to disease. I like to tell people, uh, even if you chose your parents unwisely, there's still a lot you can do to modify your destiny. In other words, it's in our hands. Yes, having family members with premature disease uh, can roughly double your risk of developing a heart attack compared to someone with no family history. But much of that is mediated through things we can control. So even if you do have a bad family history, by keeping your cholesterol level very low, your blood pressure low, by not smoking, by being physically active, we would eradicate about 90 or
10: 95% of heart disease. I fiddle with it. And I have books of all songs that I try to get, go through and play every once in a while.
1: 94-year-old heart study volunteer Walter Sullivan follows the life-sustaining advice, and then some. A few years ago, he entered a newspaper ad placed by a local music company.
10: They formed a group of older people, and they offered to give them lessons for the rest of their lives if they bought an organ. (laughs) You're getting your money's worth, aren't you? (laughs) But my life must have ended two or three years ago because they stopped the lessons, mostly because the participants moved away or died. (laughs) So I just do it on my own now.
1: (laughs) Walter Sullivan nearly halfway through his ninth decade and the Framingham Heart Study now in its seventh, both still going strong.
10: Not very good, is right. it, huh? Yeah. That's great. But <laughs> well, I'd have fun.
1: out there, lurking in the deep, hungry, waiting. Actually, sharks aren't all that dangerous. According to the International Shark Attack File, there were just 62 confirmed, unprovoked shark attacks on people in all of 2006. In fact, in the United States, you're three times more likely to be fatally attacked by an alligator than a shark, and 37 times more likely to die from a snake bite. Still, you don't want to have a close encounter with a great white in the deep blue. So beaches where sharks share the water with swimmers are trying out new ways to protect people. In Cape Town, South Africa, they've created a network of spotters who sound an alarm when danger lurks below.
9: Reporter Terry Fitzpatrick lived to tell the tale. If you're swimming along Cape Town's ocean beach, this is a sound you do not want to hear. This is just a test, but about 50 times a year, this horn and an even louder siren signal an actual alarm. It means a great white shark is swimming toward shore. Yvonne Camp of the Cape Town Shark Spotter Patrol says the warnings work.
0: It really just takes a few minutes, that siren goes, and everybody knows the drill. The shark spotters also walk up and down and blow whistle and wave hands, what, you know, whatever it takes to get the last people out the water.
9: The shark spotters are a team of 20 specially trained lookouts funded by the city of Cape Town, the World Wildlife Fund, and local surf shops. Their work begins not on the beach, but in the mountains high above shoreline.
10: Nisenberg Beach, watch from Nisenberg Mountain, watch.
9: Here, Tracy Provence peers at the ocean using high power binoculars.
10: Visibility is 10%. I got about 20 surface and 10 by the scope.
9: Province says a great white shark is hard to miss. They can grow up to 20 feet long.
12: It's a dark shadow. Most of the time they don't come up. If they come up, you'll just see the fun.
9: Provence uses a walkie-talkie radio to warn the beaches below. She tracks everything in the water, because wherever there's prey, predators follow. I have a school of dolphins, Guppy. Great white sharks are a particular problem in Cape Town. At least 250 of them come to feed at a seal colony that lives on an island close to shore. Marine biologist Allison Cock at the University of Cape Town has been using underwater radio beacons to study the sharks. The beacons look like thick gray pencils with fish hooks at the end.
0: And what we have here is an acoustic monitor. And what these do is they work in conjunction with a transmitter, which we tag the sharks with. So when we get up close and personal with the sharks, we try and attach these transmitters to them. And this transmitter sends out a unique code.
9: Cox's research reveals that sharks stay away from shore when there are newborn pups to eat at the seal colony. But at this time of year, sharks rove closer to the beach in search of other prey. She says great whites are not man-eaters by nature, but they are inquisitive.
0: White sharks are particularly confident, curious animals. They're really interested in people, and for the most part, they don't do anything. They swim by, they have a look, they swim by, and they carry on swimming.
9: But with more than 100 teeth, Even a curious nibble from a great white can maim or kill a person. Cape Town's shark spotter program began three years ago after a series of attacks. There were calls to cull the shark population, but great whites are an endangered species and Cox says killing them would upset the region's balance of marine wildlife.
0: Great white sharks are the top predator in our waters here in Cape Town. So, this means that they have a lot of influence on all the species below them. They don't only prey on seals, they prey on different uh, shark species, fish populations, rays, all kinds of things.
9: Shark spider Yvonne Camp says safety nets were ruled out for Cape Town because sharks, dolphins, turtles, penguins, and whales get tangled in them and die. She says her network of warning stations is a healthy compromise.
0: When people's lives are threatened, everyone's really keen on on keeping the people safe and not so worried about the sharks. What we're trying to do is find a balance where we're keeping people safe, but we're also not harming the ocean.
9: Many surfers and swimmers support this approach.
0: People should leave the water first before taking out any sharks. You know, it's their world and they should be left alone.
8: I think the, the sharks have just as much right to be in the water as we have, and they're entitled to be there.
4: I think if they wanted to attack people, there'd be more attacks, because there so are a lot out there. So basically, you take your chances.
9: <laughs> Copy, look out. Copy.
4: Copy,
9: OK, thank you, guys. Stand by. The shark spotting program does more than safeguard the beach. Yvonne Camp says it increases awareness about the role sharks play in the marine ecosystem and it provides jobs.
0: The shark spotting program is primarily a safety program, but it's also creating opportunities for people like the shark spotters. A lot of them were unemployed. So there's a lot of other spin offs from the program besides the safety of the people in the water.
10: Okay, Mr. McMountain I just need a situation. Please give me your situation, please.
9: The spotting team seems to be beating the odds. According to Shark Attack File, a group that tracks incidents worldwide, roughly 90 shark bites are reported each year. On average, six people are killed. But since the spotters began protecting 10 popular beaches, they haven't had a single shark attack. For Living on Earth, I'm Terry Fitzpatrick in Cape Town.
1: Just ahead, we drop in on a pigeon for a change. But first, this note on emerging science from Alexandra Gutierrez.
6: In America's heartland lies one of the world's largest supervolcanoes. Its last eruption was 1,000 times more powerful than that of Mount St. Helens, and it's capable of covering half the continent in volcanic ash. Now, this supervolcano is rising up from the ground. No, that's not the plot of a holiday blockbuster. It's the findings of University of Utah seismologists. Yellowstone National Park hosts one of the world's largest volcano fields. Its many geysers and hot springs suggest that the park lies above a hot spot, an area of the Earth's crust that has experienced volcanic activity for an incredibly long period of time. In this case, about 4 million years. Now scientists say that parts of the park floor are rising at record rates. Since 2004, the floor of the park has risen approximately three inches per year. Usually, the elevation change is no more than a fraction of an inch. Researchers believe that this movement is due to a massive injection of molten rock six miles beneath the park's surface. They used a computer simulation to reveal that a slab of magma the size of Los Angeles has been putting pressure on the area and likely causing the uplift. But this activity shouldn't be cause for alarm. The rate of land uplift has slowed, and there is no other evidence that Yellowstone will be erupting anytime soon. Instead of fretting about hot lava, tourists to the park can focus their attention on keeping their distance from the bears. That's this week's note on Emerging Science. I'm Alexander Gutierrez.
1: Keep listening to Living on Earth.
6: Support
4: for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment, and from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International.
1: It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. It's a long drive from Southern California to upstate New York where commentator Verlin Klinkenborg has a farm, and as he made the trip... It gave him plenty of time to consider the meaning of home.
11: Whenever I drive across country, I carry a single question with me. Could I live here? It's a central question for a species whose habitat is defined as much by imagination and emotion as it is by biological constraints. And it's a question that raises the matter of time as much as place. Cutting across central Wyoming, I see a sheltered spot under the hills where the sagebrush breaks into grass, and I think I could live there. And I could now, because living anywhere has been made so easy in our time. It's no longer really a problem of physical limits, how far you have to haul water and salt and flour, how long you can go without company. But what I'm really asking when I wonder, could I live here, is, who would I be if I did live here? To that question, I never know the answer. I see an abandoned farmhouse on the high plains, the ruins of a few old cottonwoods, and I can imagine hearing the notes of a meadowlark being carried away on the wind as I go to work on the place. I have to remind myself that in this simple experiment in relativity... I cannot allow myself to imagine living anywhere I can see from my current position. But what if it were a place just like this and over the horizon, out of the sight of so much movement? Perhaps this is a mental game everyone plays, a way to test the life you're actually living. You drive through a small town at night and wonder what it would be like to feel at home in one of those houses where only the bedroom lamp is still shining. You wonder what your own life would look like if you could somehow stand outside it as a stranger. But what this question always confirms in me is something I must have understood when my wife and I decided to settle on a small farm in the country. Driving across America, I see place after place I can happily imagine living. And what I notice is that they are mostly uninhabited places. So Nebraska comes to an end, and the next day we drive into Iowa, where I've already lived a good part of my life. It's been raining since dawn, and now the wind is pounding down from the north. The rain has begun to cut across the hillside fields and run down to the creeks and rivers, carrying Iowa away to the Gulf of Mexico. Two more days on the road, and we'll be back in the place where I no longer wonder if I could live there, because this is the place, it turns out, I live. Verling Klinkenborg is an editorial writer for the New York Times. At home sings me of sweet
4: things. My life-
1: Livestock on U.S. farms produce enough manure every year to fill a convoy of trucks stretching from San Francisco to Washington, D.C. Sure, it smells, but there are bigger problems, water pollution, and all the methane gas this waste releases. Methane from farms is a major contributor to global warming. But a growing number of farmers are helping to solve the problem, and in the process, they're turning their animals' manure into money. Living on Earth's Ashley Hearn reports.
13: At 5 o'clock on a cold Vermont morning, even the cows don't seem too happy to be awake. Blue Spruce Dairy Farm in Bridport, Vermont, is home to 2,000 of these vocal ladies. They're huddled together in long pens, mooing, munching hay, and going to the bathroom, to the tune of 35,000 gallons of pee and manure a day. Dealing with the waste of his large herd of Holsteins used to be a heavy burden for Earl Audette, who co-owns Blue Spruce Farm with his two brothers. But things have changed. Poop and pee and water being reused. In 2005, Earl and his brothers installed an anaerobic digester to collect the manure and wastewater from his dairy barns and turn it into energy. Enough energy to meet all the farm's needs and power 400 Vermont homes to boot. Walking down the long concrete aisles of one of the barns, Audette points out where the alchemy of transforming poop to power begins.
8: We've got these alley scrapers right here that run back and forth 24 hours a day. They're always scraping the floor, scraping the manure up. And it dumps it in the center of the barn.
13: And the cows so, just have to kind of step over it? Yeah,
8: they just kind of step over it pretty naturally. You get some that aren't real smart about it for a while, they'll freak out and run around.
13: From here, the manure and wastewater is pumped up the hill to another, noisier building, a barn-turned-power plant.
8: this right here is your digester itself, concrete box uh, with a concrete cover. You're standing on top of 12 feet of manure, and the top two feet is where the gases rise and you capture the gases off from the top.
13: Inside this big concrete box, bacteria is eating cow manure and wastewater and giving off methane gas, which is then burned on site in a generator to make electricity. Blue Spruce Farm used to pay $8,000 a month for electricity, but that bill has disappeared. Now the power company is paying them $2,000 a month for the extra power they feed back into the grid. And there's one more way the anaerobic digester is saving Blue Spruce Farm money every month.
8: This here is the separated manure. That's cow manure that's been through the digester.
13: The other byproduct of the bacteria is a fine, feathery brown substance that can be used as bedding for the cows instead of traditional wood shavings.
8: It's a lighter, fluffier product and it doesn't have those wood chips that can act like slivers. I mean, if we were laying on slivers, we wouldn't like it.
13: It's $7,500 per month in bedding Earl Audet doesn't have to buy anymore. The digester is making it possible to look beyond the next milk check. But for Audette, it's not just about the money. Authorities have been cracking down on manure runoff.
8: Oh yeah, it's all about the environmental part of it all um, to begin with. It's the land management, nutrient management, that is making it something that we have to look into as a large farm, to keep Lake Champlain cleaner, keep the waterways cleaner.
13: When nitrogen and phosphorus-rich manure is left in ponds or spread over fields, rain carries the nutrients to nearby water bodies, like Lake Champlain, creating dead zones where there's not enough oxygen for marine life to survive. There are now more than 140 dead zones worldwide, most of them the result of agricultural runoff. That's all in addition to livestock air emissions of ammonia and methane. Each year, manure from U.S. livestock is responsible for about 2 million metric tons of methane.
10: And that's about 7 percent
13: of the total anthropogenic methane emissions from the United States. Kurt Roos is head of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency's AgSTAR program, which encourages sustainable practices with grants to green-thinking farmers, including Earl Adet. Roos says that as the industry grows, digesters are taking a bite out of the methane emissions from livestock waste.
10: I've been doing this a long time, and we've seen enormous growth. When I first started this, there were only like 10 systems running. It's reduced about 70,000 metric tons already.
13: The number of anaerobic digesters has more than doubled in the last two years. Around the country, about 120 digesters produce enough electricity for 25,000 homes. Harnessing cow methane is a growing industry with a lot of potential, and it's attracting a new kind of business. Call them methane middlemen cow poop capitalists. People who don't farm. Instead, they buy up the rights to farmers' manure and sell the energy.
12: We will do all the engineering work, scout, you know, scout out the location, uh, we'll have all documentation in place and negotiate in it to, to sell the energy, whether that's with the local uh, gas or electric utility or some other end user.
13: Albert Morales is the executive vice president of the Environmental Power Corporation, a $60 million publicly traded company.
12: Right now we're focusing on larger scale facilities. Uh, in Texas, we are developing a um, large scale facility that will process the manure from about 10,000 cows.
10: I would question whether that's even a farm or not.
13: Ken Midkiff is the Sierra Club conservation chair for Missouri.
10: My guess is that the animals, uh, the cows in this case Holsteins probably, are uh, kept uh, on concrete, uh, where the manure and the feces and the urine are easily collected. Um, Chances are those are going into an anaerobic. Is is that a farm? I mean, you know, it sounds like a factory to me. It sounds like an industrial process.
13: The Sierra Club opposes anything that might encourage what some call factory farms, even though the digesters lower methane emissions and dead zone-causing runoff. A recent study by the EPA says 7,000 more farms in the U.S. could install digesters. And if they did, it would reduce their methane emissions by 60 percent and supply power for 630,000 more homes. Not the solution to the whole energy picture, perhaps, but a big part of the cow pie. For Living on Earth, I'm Ashley Ahern in Bridport, Vermont. Here's
1: the poop on pigeons. Some people consider them dirty, disease-carrying pests, a real public nuisance. And then there are those people with a passion for pigeons, a person like Andrew Bleckman, for example. He's written a book about the bird titled Pigeons, the Fascinating Saga of the World's Most Revered and Reviled Bird. And he joins me. Thank you very much, Andrew. Good to be here. It really is a fascinating saga. Who would have thought the
12: pigeon had such an amazing history? Well, certainly not me. Uh, I've tripped into this by accident. And the more I learned about this bird, the more I was amazed. Well, you could say it was a real accident. Yeah, it was actually. It was uh, I was at the bodega. I used to live in Manhattan. I was getting a tuna sandwich and this place made it just the way I liked it. And uh, while I was there, I met a guy named Jose and uh, he tells me that he races pigeons and I just you know he, he got my attention. <laughs> I didn't think people did that, let alone still did that. And they told me his pigeons were thoroughbreds. That really caught my attention. I know, like horses. They breed pigeons like they do racehorses. Absolutely, actually. In fact, the very best pigeons, they can bring in a pot a million dollars at a uh, international race. Actually, they're sold at auction for tens of thousands of dollars, and they're studded out for several thousand dollars a go.
1: They're related to doves.
12: Yeah, actually, they are. They're called the rock dove. Um, in fact, pigeon is just basically French for dove, just like paloma is Spanish for uh, pigeon or dove. Do all? pigeons home? Yes, all rock doves do. Some do it better than others through practice, such as, uh, such as the homing pigeons. I mean, they are thoroughbreds, but they do all do home. They used to be cliff dwellers, and let's say they, they were—think of the cliffs of Dover. They, they would basically nest in the cliffs, and then they would forage inland for food, and they would never abandon the nest. And when they mate, they mate for life, so they would always come back with their food. They basically honed that skill to find their way back.
1: Do we know why they home, how it works?
12: You know what's funny you should ask. I talked to the very top people in the field, including a gentleman in uh, Cornell who's dedicated his entire life to this, and no one's entirely sure, but there are a lot of theories out there, you know, and they do have an idea how it does, but they actually they're able to sense the magnetic field around the earth they're also able to um Know where they are using the sun and the moon and the stars, basically. And the other thing is they have have ultrasound hearing, so they can gauge where they are. They can hear wind over the Rockies from 2,000 miles away and gauge where they are by that as well. Well, They have extraordinary endurance and speed. Yeah, they routinely will fly 600-mile races at more than 60 miles an hour. You write about pigeons playing a role, an important role, in the Battle of Waterloo. Actually, they paid, I don't want to say, a financial role. Uh, Baron Rothschild at the time, he sent a a courier with a pigeon to the battle so that the minute that Napoleon lost, the message was then flown to England by pigeon, where he got the news a day early, and of course he invested uh, accordingly. At the time, don't forget, pigeons were the fastest way to get anything anywhere. They were basically FedEx or Airborne Express. Other than a pigeon, all you had was, was a horse going at about a trot or a gallop.
1: They have a, an illustrious history. I, I didn't realize there were more pigeons honored as heroes in World War One and Two than in canines,
12: yeah, when you look at the pigeon in the park, you wouldn't think you know that guy's you know related to war heroes, but they are. In fact, they're decorated uh, metal war heroes. One million pigeons served in, in World War One and World War II and literally saved thousands of soldiers' lives.
1: They would use them and put little bands around their legs with messages.
12: Yeah, they would um, ferry critical messages from one place back to to headquarters, and they invariably made it back and quickly. Now, think about this, too. The first Olympics in 776 B.C., the uh, news of the results of the winners was actually sent out to all the villages by pigeons.
1: Charles Darwin, you write, didn't get his inspiration for the theory of natural
12: selection from finches, but from pigeons, yeah, you know, it's interesting. We always talk about the finches when we think of Darwin, but that was very early on. That's when he first got some inklings of what was going on. But it was actually pigeons that he used. He became a real pigeon fancier, and he would breed them in his backyard.
1: So you have so many people that love pigeons, but they
12: get such a bad rap. You could say they were, and I'm going to make a bad joke, pigeonholed. Yeah, they are pigeonholed, and it, it's a critical issue. This is an absolutely horribly persecuted bird. They put caustic gels on, on perches, which burn through its feet. It's poisoned routinely, electrocuted, and it's actually a, a phenomenal animal. Well, Tom Lehrer
1: uh, once wrote about poisoning pigeons in the park with cyanide-coated peanuts.
12: Yeah, somewhere it became funny to persecute pigeons, and I'm not sure where that came. I, I was always told that you know, to pick on someone smaller than you just wasn't particularly cool. What could it be? Woody Allen in uh, Stardust Memories, he, he called them what? Rats with, <laughs> rats with wings, yeah. It's believed he invented the phrase, uh, rats with wings, but they're really not. In fact, they're no dirtier than we are. They live off what we drop.
1: What, what about what they drop? Isn't that like really bad for us?
12: No, it's really no different than what we drop. The, the problem is they don't have toilets. And the problem really is that there's too many of them. If we had fewer pigeons, it wouldn't be a bigger problem. But then, you know, wildlife can be inconvenient especially urban wildlife, one of the last real vestiges of of urban wildlife. Yeah, and that's why I think we really need to appreciate them. I found that when I lived in New York City, they really animate the place. So, Andrew, what is your suggestion and what do we do with pigeons to solve the problem? You know, humane pigeon control really isn't that difficult. It's very simple, really, and they do it all through Germany, Switzerland, and the Benelux countries, you know, Netherlands and Holland. And what you do is you create pigeon coops. They're really just hen houses, and you put them in public areas, and they can be quite beautiful. You can have contests for designing them, and you ask people to feed the birds there, and that's where they will breed. At the end of each week, you just call the eggs out. You just remove the eggs, and you can reduce a pigeon population by half in in a matter of a year or two. You know what's interesting? For 10,000 years, pigeons were considered our very best friends. And just in about the last 50 years, they've just been utterly vilified as vermin by the pest control industry. And it's a very recent, recent thing. And I'm, I'm just really hoping that people will take another look at this bird because it is everywhere we are. Everyone can relate to pigeons.
1: Well, Andrew, you sound like a real phyloperasteron. Is that the word? Well, <laughs> is
12: that the word for that's it? the word for it. That, that would be an admirer of pigeons. And uh, I'd have to say, yeah, that I have become an admirer of pigeons. I can't look at a pigeon the same way again. And I don't think after reading the book, anyone else can as well. I mean, I've really come to admire these birds. Well, Andrew, thank you very much. Thank you for having me.
1: Andrew Bleckman is author of Pigeons, the fascinating saga of the world's most revered and reviled bird. We leave you this week, home, home on the range. Where seldom is heard a discouraging word of the bison and coyotes. They make their playground where the skies are not cloudy on the vast windswept grasses of the American and Canadian plains. Lang Elliott and Bernie Krause recorded these Prairie Home Companions for the WildSanctuary.com audio series. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Bobby Bascom, Eileen Bolinsky, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Mitra Taj, and Jeff Young, with help from Sarah Hawkins and Marilyn Gavoni. Our interns are Luke Borders, Kim Gittleson, and Jessica Lee Smith. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lyridge Dean composed our themes. You can find us at loe.org. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. I'm Bruce Gellerman.
4: Thanks for listening. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live a healthy, productive life. Information at gatesfoundation.org. And PaxWorld Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. PaxWorld for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com.
11: PRI Public Radio International.